Turn with me to Matthew 11. We're going to be looking at the beginning of this chapter. Um, the uh, first six verses. I introduced this last week, but it was... Uh, I think I need to sort of review it as an introduction before we dive in again. As we've seen in so far in our study... We know that Matthew has been presenting the kingship and messiahship of Jesus Christ and trying to explain with a variety of testimonies to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the king, the messiah. And, for example, in chapter 1, he began with a testimony of history, presenting the genealogy and ancestry that points to Jesus as the messiah. Then he presents the testimony of the virgin birth. And uh, the text tells us that Jesus was uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit without a human father. Then we saw in chapter 2 the testimony of fulfilled prophecy as Christ fulfilled Old Testament predictions in detail. Then in chapter 3 there was a testimony of the forerunner, John the Baptist, a prophet of God, a man filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb who says, this is the Messiah. And in also in chapter 3 is the testimony of God the Father at Jesus' baptism, who says, this is my beloved Son. And then in chapter 4, we had the testimony of Jesus himself in terms of his power over Satan, uh, his archenemy. Then in uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew gives us the testimony of Jesus' own words, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus speaks with uh, truthfulness, power, and authority, verifying his claim. Then in chapters 8 and 9, there was a testimony of his works, uh, healing, casting out demons, raising the dead, forgiving sin, all of those actions testifying to his deity. And finally, in chapter 10, as we saw over the past few weeks, there was a testimony of Jesus about what it means to be one of his disciples, to be one of those who are so convinced that he is the Messiah King that they are willing to pay the dearest price of loyalty to him, even death himself. So Matthew has laid out all of this tremendous evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the King, to whom his followers owe all allegiance. And now as he approaches chapters 11 and 12, he has a new purpose in mind. Based upon all of his testimony, by history, prophecy, teaching, and his disciples, what is going to be the reaction of people when they hear and see Jesus. Matthew deals with that in chapters 11 and 12. In fact, he lists for us various kinds of reactions to the claims of Christ. And by giving us a brief narrative events in these next two chapters, he gives us various categories of response to Jesus Christ. Uh, these chapters are filled with very common reactions to the claims of Christ, which were true back then when he was walking among men, and they're just as true today. So as we go through these chapters, we are going to see negative responses of doubt, and criticism, and indifference, rejection, amazement, blasphemy, and just plain curious fascination. And each of them, in a sense, is a kind of unique response all on its own, although there is some overlap as well. But interestingly, at the end of chapter 11 and the end of chapter 12, we'll see that after doing all that, Jesus presents an appeal for faith in him. After presenting all the various negative responses, he calls for a positive response of faith in his listeners. So when we finish covering these two chapters, we will have run the gamut of 
possible reactions to the claims of Christ. And just as they were responses of people back then, they are the same responses we see today. And hopefully we'll understand a little bit better where people are coming from when they react to Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the first response, which is a response of doubt. And look at verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now the first response that he deals with is this response of doubt. That's what we're going to see, the first six verses. Uh, and you might call it perplexity or confusion. Uh, but I think the word doubt says it better than those other two terms. Now let me just give you a footnote, footnote as we begin so that you be sure that you understand something. When the New Testament talks about doubt, whether it's in the Gospels or the Epistles, it primarily focuses in on believers. It's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. Uh, you have to be committed to it before you would begin to question it. So doubt is pointed to as a unique problem of the believer. I, I tell you that to encourage you that it's normal for believers to experience doubt. In fact, the illustration in Matthew 11 happens to be John the Baptist. Now, unless you think, well, what does that prove? Verse 11 will help you. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Uh, now, if the greatest man that ever lived up to that point in time had doubts, I think we can be a little comforted, can't we, uh, when we doubt. So, doubt is basically a problem encountered by believers. For example, over and over in Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, O oh, you of little faith. They had committed themselves to him. They had believed, but their belief from time to time hit some snags that made them doubt. Jesus said to them in Mark 11, 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. So he had to continually remind them not to doubt. Remember now, these guys were with Jesus sometimes 24-7. Uh, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, and then he appeared to them after his resurrection. So you would think that their days of doubting would be over. Uh, but look what we find in Matthew 28. Flip over there. This is after the resurrection. Matthew 28. This is after he's already appeared to them when they're locked together in the room behind a locked door in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them to go to Galilee, and he would meet them there. So listen to verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So they, all, they go all the way up to Galilee, up to the specific mountain that Jesus told them he would meet them at. And now listen to verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. What's the next three words? But some doubted. That's absolutely astounding to me. I believe this is talking about some of the other 500 plus disciples uh, that 
Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, but the text doesn't actually say that they were. Uh, however, I think that's very likely because the 11 had seen him multiple times up to this point. Uh, uh, but think about this. People say all the time, I won't believe in such and such unless I can see it with my own two eyes. And here Jesus is in person, and they're looking at him with their own two eyes. And yet it says, some doubted. If you don't think doubt is a problem for believers, that verse ought to remove all of your doubts. Okay? James 1, 6 to 8 says, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being in a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So while doubt is a matter that arises in the life of a believer, it shouldn't be there. Uh, but it is. So we're not so shocked when we see one who is the illustration of doubt being none other than John the Baptist. Now let's look at the opening of the passage back in our text, chapter 11, and then we'll examine the problem of doubt. Verse 1 says, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now that's what we studied in chapter 10. Uh, he selected them, he taught them, he trained them, he prepared them to go out in the world to represent him. And while the text doesn't state it precisely, the implication is that they went out on their first short-term mission trip while he went to the various cities in Galilee to teach and preach. That's what it means when it says he went to preach in their cities. Eleven of the twelve of them, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee. So he continued his Galilean ministry. Notice that he didn't just sit around and wait for them to go out and then come back. He got busy himself. He engaged in ministry also. That reveals his leadership and his great heart for the work. And it says he went out to teach and preach. That's the twofold ministry of Christ, teaching and preaching. And they are different. Uh, the synagogue was a place where the scriptures were read and exposited. Uh, the Jewish historian Philo says that the main feature of a synagogue service was the reading and detailed exposition of Scripture. That's the teaching of the Word. So the Lord would go into the synagogue, and since visiting rabbis and scholars were welcome to teach, Jesus took advantage of that privilege and would take the Old Testament and give them its meaning in pointing to himself. He was an expository teacher. He was also a preacher. Uh, that word means to proclaim. And he would go from the synagogue to the highways and byways, to the hillsides and anywhere he could, and he would preach and proclaim his kingdom. And we can also assume, based on verse 5, that he continued to perform miracles of healing, casting out demons, raising the dead, and forgiving sin. So the Lord goes on about his work. But he's alone now because the 12 are gone on their first mission. And as Christ is ministering, we're told in verses 2 and 3 that he was approached by some disciples of John the Baptist. It says, Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? Now remember, John is the forerunner of Christ. 
He's the one who announced his coming. The one who said, behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, he's the one who said he must increase and I must decrease. John was a relative of Jesus. And he'd already known Christ. He'd already pointed to Christ. He's already baptized Christ. He's affirmed that he believed Jesus as the Christ. But there's certain things that caused him to doubt. So he sends these guys to ask, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? It reflects his perplexity. It reflects his doubt. Even though he had affirmed his belief, even though he had known about Christ. For example, back in chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus was in Galilee and he called Matthew to follow him. And Matthew's gathered together a lot of sinners for a feast. And it's in that setting that verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now the point that I want you to see is this. The disciples of John were sort of tracking Jesus. They were stalkers. They, John was in prison, and he needed a report on how things were going. And so some of his disciples would follow Jesus around, keeping track of how he was ministering. After all, John had undoubtedly told them that Jesus was the Messiah. Flip over to uh, Luke 7 for a moment. And we see another utterly essential text. Luke 7. And we'll, we have this passage from verses 11 to 17. Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. He touches the casket and says, Arise. The dead son sits up, began to speak. He turns him over to his mother. And it says, And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, and so forth. So he raised the dead, and then notice verse 17. And this report concerning him went out, out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. And then this little note in verse 18. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. You notice that? The, so they're, they're tracking him. They're following him. Now, back in our text in Matthew then, the disciples of John are poking around in the crowds they're hanging around on the edges. They're watching what Jesus is doing because it's utterly important to John to fulfill his task as the one who announced the Messiah. And he wanted to be sure that the one who he had announced was indeed the Messiah. Uh, so he, he wanted to be sure that this was the right guy, that he hadn't missed it. And so his disciples stayed close to Jesus as well as Going back to John. It also indicates that although he was a prisoner, he was able to have some visitors. Uh, they could come and see him. Uh, just as a side footnote, it's also true that he had some disciples who apparently didn't stay very close to him because when we come to Acts 19, we meet some of his disciples in Ephesus who had never even heard of Jesus. Uh, so, but John had a lot of followers. And so he sent some of the ones who stayed close to him and work very closely with him to follow Jesus around to make sure he was right. 
But now there were reasons for him to doubt. And so he asked this question, are you the one who is to come? Uh, now that sounds like such a vague question. Who's he talking about? Uh, the Greek tense uh, uses a present tense participle, so it says, are you the coming one? Uh, that's a title for the Messiah, uh, just like the branch or the seed of David, the line of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings or the prince of peace. In fact, it was one of the most common titles of the Messiah. It's first introduced in Psalm 40, verse 7, where it says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Isaiah 59, 20 says, As a redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression to Jacob declares Yahweh. Uh, in one form or another, it's used in all four of the Gospels. Uh, quoting Psalm 118.26, remember the crowd there at uh, Jesus' triumphal entry? Uh, they welcomed Jesus and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Mark 1.7, it says that John the Baptist proclaimed, After me one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. The same thing's recorded in Luke 3.16. Matthew 23.39, as Jesus lamented over the city of Jerusalem for its rejection of him, he says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, quoting Psalm 118.26. Hebrews 10.37, speaking of his second coming, the writer says, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. So the Messiah is called the coming one. Repeatedly in scripture. So the Jews clearly understood that to be a messianic title. So what John is asking is very simple. He is saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? That's the first question. The second one is this, or shall we look for someone else? That certainly indicates John was expecting the Messiah, but it also indicates he was a bit perplexed. Are you the Messiah or are we looking for someone else? So it's clear that John was doubting, and there's, there were reasons why he was doubting, and we'll look at those in a minute. But the thing that is good about John is that when he had a doubt, he went to the right source to have his doubt dealt with. Where did he go? To the Lord. Yeah. Now, some people might want to come along and say, well, John didn't believe. No, that's not true. Uh, the form of the question implies that he believed, but he was having some perplexity. Uh, he's saying, in effect, should I continue to believe what I believe, or should I believe something else? It's as if he's saying, I believe that you're the Messiah. Am I wrong in believing that? Uh, the great Bible scholar Leon Morris explains John's thinking this way. Here's what he writes. He says, John was simply puzzled. He had prophesied such great things about Jesus, and specifically he had spoken of judgment. But there was no sign of the judgment he expected. It would have been very human for John to have looked for judgment on those who had brought his ministry to a close and made him suffer so many things in jail. Jesus was simply moving among ordinary men and women, teaching them about the things of God and healing their sick. Was this really what the Great One would do? 
What sort of Messiah was it who refrained from religious practices like fasting, which John's disciples followed, consorted with irreligious characters, and left his forerunner to languish in prison? John is asking whether it is this sort of thing that God's Messiah would do, or do we wait for another? Was John, Jesus, like John, a kind of forerunner? Would a greater come and bring judgment on sinners? End quote. In a sense, the very fact that John would ask Jesus to answer this indicates he hasn't lost his faith in Jesus or he never would have gone to him for assurance. Uh, if he is saying, would you assure me that you're the Messiah, then he must have believed that to start with. Uh, he didn't just deal with his doubt in himself. He didn't just talk to other people. Uh, that would have dragged everyone down in doubt. Uh, but he went to the Lord. His, his faith had found a difficulty, a perplexity. And all of us have experienced that in some kind of way, haven't we? Yes. Right, right. They didn't know the answers. And, and they're wondering, what's the answer? Yeah, and that's John. That's John. Uh, we've all had that. Whether we doubt like John did that Jesus was the official Messiah or whether we look around how the world is going and doubt his promise to return and set all things right or whether we doubt our own salvation because of the ongoing war we have with ever-present sin in our lives, we have all experienced doubt. Every one of us. John believed, he preached, he expected the Messiah to fulfill the promises. He baptized him, he pointed to him, he pronounced that he was the Messiah, and yet he's confused. And we really shouldn't be too surprised because he didn't really know everything. Uh, even though some of the things he predicted from his own mouth were from God, there were so many things he didn't know that sometimes he had difficult, difficulty interpreting what he did know. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the passage that that apparently Janetta read in my notes because that's what I was got right here. Peter says concerning the salvation of the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, make careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating that he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, the prophets studied their own writings to figure out what they were saying because they couldn't figure out the exact person or the exact time. And that was John's problem. He wanted to be sure Jesus was the right person at the right time, and so he sent some disciples to ask him. <clears throat> That's comforting in it, isn't it, to know that a man as great as John the Baptist can doubt? Uh, and even when he doubts, his greatness is instantly reaffirmed and the praise for him by Jesus that follows in this chapter shows that his doubts did not lessen Jesus' esteem for him. Uh, so then why did John doubt? Why was he perplexed? Well, as we look at the text, I think we can see four reasons why he doubted. And they're the same four reasons why we doubt. 
why we have times in our lives when we doubt God. The first one is difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances. They tend to make us doubt, don't they? Uh, humanly speaking, from a human perspective, the career of John the Baptist ended in disaster. Uh, he had been the fiery, dramatic, dynamic, confrontive, bold, courageous man who preached exactly what needed to be preached, to whom it needed to be said, when it needed to be said, and never had any fear. He was bold, powerful, aggressive. When he saw sin, he rebuked it, and he rebuked it in the person he saw it in. And the result of that was he got imprisoned. You see, the ruler of Galilee, Herod Antipas, made a trip to Rome to visit his brother. And when Herod went to see his brother, he took a liking to his brother's wife, Herodias. Uh, so he seduced her. And when he returned home, he proceeded to divorce his own wife and took his brother's wife as his new wife. And John the Baptist heard about that. So do you know what John did? He didn't write an anonymous letter to the Jerusalem Times to be published opposing Herod. He apparently confronted Herod Antipas to his face in public and told him he was a rotten, vile, adulterous sinner. You can read about that in Mark 6, 14 to 29. And that didn't go over too well with Herod, and even less so with Herodias. Uh, so if you read Mark's account, you get the impression that, that while Herod didn't really like it, he really didn't want to pick a fight with John because he knew all the people loved him. And because Herod was afraid of a possible revolt by the people, he tried to sort of ignore the problem. But Herodias was very upset. And she kept nagging Herod about it until finally Herod sent people to arrest John and throw him in prison. However, Herod didn't immediately kill John because of his fear of the people, uh, because the people believed John to be a prophet. And this wasn't just any prison he threw him into. Uh, if you went five miles east of the northern tip of the Dead Sea, then turned south and went 15 miles, you would come to a fortress which also served as a prison. Uh, the name of it was Machairus, uh, from the Greek word Machaira, meaning a sword. Uh, it was located on the top of a steep rocky hill, surrounded on all sides by deep ravines, making it almost impossible to attack. It's over 1,100 feet high, so it had a panoramic view of the Dead Sea and everything in all directions. Herod the Great had turned it into a fortress to defend against attackers from the east. In the bottom of the fortress <clears throat> was a dungeon, which was a dark, stifling, stuffy, hot pit there in the middle of that bleak desert. Uh, that's where Herod Antipas put John. For 18 months, <clears throat> John had been in the limelight, a bold prophet out in the wilderness, preaching, teaching, proclaiming. People from all over the country were coming to him. He was in the middle of the action. <clears throat> but now for over a year, he had been in the blackness of a stifling pit in the middle of a hot desert. I don't often, I don't often quote from the famous Scottish Bible commentator William Barclay, 
because despite his excellent historical insights, the rest of his theology is really messed up. Uh, in his own words, he describes himself as a liberal the uh, evangelical. Uh, his theology is so erroneous on certain critical issues, I truly wonder if he was a genuine believer. Um, he taught universalism. He believed in evolution. He questioned the doctrines of the inspiration of scripture, substitutionary atonement, the virgin birth, and miracles. I guess I'll find out when I get to heaven. Uh, so that's why I rarely mention his name. I don't want any of you to think I endorse his theology in any way and go out and buy his commentaries and think you found something great. Um, they are useful for his, he's excellent on historical background, uh, but uh, they're only useful in that way. Uh, but I think he may have captured something of the significance of John's situation because he wrote this description. Quote, for any human being, that would have been a terrible fate. But for John the Baptist, it was worse than for most. He was a child of the desert. All his life, he'd lived in the wide open spaces with a clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of the sky for his roof. And now he was confined within the four narrow walls of an underground dungeon. For someone like John, who had perhaps never lived in a house, this must have been agony. In Carlisle Castle, he's, it's a Scottish castle he's talking about, there is a little cell. Once long ago, a border chieftain was imprisoned in that cell and left there for years. In that cell, there was one little window which is placed too high for anyone standing on the floor to look out. On the ledge of the window, there are two depressions worn away in the stone. They are the marks of the hands of that border chieftain, the places where day after day he lifted himself up by his hands to look out on the green valleys across which he would never again ride. John must have been just like that. And there's nothing to wonder at and still less to criticize in the fact that questions began to take shape in John's mind. He had been so sure John was, Jesus was the one who was to come, end quote. So John was a true saint and a true prophet of God. He was holy, loyal, selfless, faithful, unreserved in his service to the Lord. He'd done exactly what God had told him to do and he had done it very well. He had announced the glorious coming of the Messiah, who would make all things right and set up his kingdom. As I said before, he was even a relative of Jesus, perhaps a cousin. His mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were relatives of some kind. Scripture doesn't tell us the exact relationship. <coughs> he had been filled with the Spirit since the time that he had been in his mother's womb. He had taken... Nazarite vow, the highest level of spiritual commitment possible. So he had to wonder, is this my reward? And you see, doubt comes from our inability to deal with negative circumstances and trials. I mean, if you think, if you're the God of all comfort and you're the Christ that cares, why am I going through this? It, it doesn't seem to square out uh, up. And so John must have thought, I've been faithful. I mean, didn't Isaiah promise in chapter 61, 1 and 2, that when the Messiah came, he would bring release to the captives and freedom to prisoners? If that's true, then what's going on here? I mean, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Isn't there a place of blessedness for a faithful man like I've been? You see, our doubts come like John's doubts, don't they? 
We convince ourselves that we belong to the Lord and the Lord is going to take care of us. And when something goes wrong, we really begin to doubt. And if we lose a child to death or to rebellion and unbelief or our husband or wife dies and leaves us for, or leaves us for someone else or we get a diagnosis of cancer or we or a loved one is injured and left crippled for life, we begin to think, God, is this what it's supposed to be like when you love and care for us? If everything doesn't go the way we think it should go, we wonder if God truly loves us and we easily fall into doubt. And once we start thinking that way, Satan just loves to get in behind us and just start shoving us deeper and deeper into doubt. Except when we willfully continue in sin, we are never so vulnerable to doubting God's goodness and truth and believing Satan's lies as when we are suffering. And John doubted because of difficult circumstances, and I understand that, but what did he do? He did the right thing with his doubt. He went to the Lord. That's the place to go if you have doubt over those kind of things. Go to the Lord. Yes, he'd begun to stumble. Verse 6 makes that clear. But he asked the Lord to help him deal with his doubt. And he sent these disciples, and in effect he says, Master, will you help me understand? You see, Jesus was glad to respond. In verse 6, he even promised John spiritual blessings if he didn't waver in trust, even in the midst of mystifying circumstances. Remember, Paul was in prison in Philippians 4 when he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for what? Nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verses 11 to 13, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance. In, an, in any and all things, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in verse 19, he says, My God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Those are words from prison. When we're in difficult circumstances, we need to do what John did. Go to the source of all answers. Negative circumstances are tough but they should drive us to the Lord who will respond to those struggles by replacing our doubts with faith. We aren't there yet, but what did John, Jesus say in verses 4 and 5? He says, you tell John that the blind have received their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What kind of people are those? They are the hurting, the broken, the crippled, the destitute people. He's saying, John, if you think I don't care about those who are hurting, take a look at the kind of people I touch. I do care, and this, John, is only a preview of coming attractions in the kingdom. By the way, John's circumstances never got any better. They got worse. He got his head chopped off. 
Doubt comes from difficult circumstances. That only gives us an opportunity to exercise faith. And faith, when it's exercised, gets stronger. Don't let anything lure you into the trap of doubt, not even difficult circumstances. Someday you'll be delivered, maybe not in this world, but in the next. The second thing that can cause doubt is incomplete revelation. Incomplete revelation. He says in verse 2 that John had heard about the works Jesus was doing, but he doubted because he didn't have the opportunity for a first-hand look. Everything he heard was second-hand and incomplete. He couldn't see it with his own two eyes. He didn't have that opportunity, like Peter said in 2 Peter 1.16, to be an eyewitness of his majesty. He didn't have the opportunity, as the Apostle John said in 1 John 1.1, not only to see him, but to touch him with his hands. He didn't have a more sure word of Scripture, as 2 Peter 1.19 says we have. He didn't have complete revelation. There was a lot missing, and he was getting second-hand information. So he says, I need to hear it directly from Jesus himself. And the Lord said, okay, you need some first-hand information? I'll give you some. And we see this more clearly in Luke's gospel. So look with me for a minute at Luke 7 again. Luke is recording the same incident. We already saw how Jesus raised the dead son of the widow back to life. And then in verse 20, Luke says John's disciples came and they asked Jesus the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? Now watch this in verse 21. At that very time, literally in that hour. In other words, right then. He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and he granted sight to many who were blind. And so after, then after giving that demonstration, verse 22 says, He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the dead, deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He did a whole bunch of miracles and said, Here, these are for John's benefit. Now go tell him. Jesus performed those miracles specifically to answer John's question. To prove, to provide John with his credentials as the Messiah. You say, well, how does this relate to me? Well, do you know why a lot of people doubt? Not only because of negative circumstances and worldly influences, but a lot of people doubt because they just don't understand God's revelation. And they don't know, that is, they don't know the scriptures. They have an inadequate knowledge or understanding of his word. Show me a professing Christian who, is doubt, who, is, who doubts the sufficiency of scripture or who doubts their salvation or doubts whether or not Jesus is coming back. And I will show you a person who is not regularly and diligently studying the word. I will promise you that if you will immerse yourself in Scripture and daily expose yourself to the revelation of God, your doubts will be erased. John MacArthur says, when God is allowed to speak through his word, doubt vanishes like mist in the sunlight. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? 
They're walking along, confused, perplexed, doubting. Lord comes along, what did he do? Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then he went home, and when he broke bread and blessed it, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then verse 32 says, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You see, what dispelled their doubt was the revelation of himself in the scriptures. We all need a first-hand manifestation of the living Christ to dispel doubt, and it comes through the pages of Holy Scripture. That's why Acts 17.11 says the believers in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Scripture is where we are to go for assurance and to dispel our doubt. You don't go to your neighbor next door. You don't go, I'll say, you don't go to your pastor to get rid of your doubts unless your pastor's pointing you to the Word. That's where you go, it's through the Word. All of us need it continually and constantly. The third thing that causes doubt is worldly influences. You'll notice it says in verse 2, that John had heard about the works of Christ, and it, this confused him. You know why? Because the works that Jesus was doing was not parallel to what the people thought the Messiah should do. You say, John, uh, and Bruce, are you saying John was thinking incorrectly? Yes. You see, everyone thought that when the Messiah came, he would first overthrow the Romans, give Israel back her land, eliminate all suffering, and would establish a kingdom of righteousness. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, they predicted a kingdom in which everything and everyone would be at peace and righteousness would rule a kingdom in which there would be an abundance of food and no illness. But what the Old Testament prophets themselves didn't know and the Jews of Jesus' day didn't know was that they were prophesying about his second coming, not his first coming. So John had become a victim of the thinking of his day. He looked at the Old Testament scriptures and thought, isn't it? supposed to be this way but it doesn't seem to be this way but Jesus was just walking around meek and lowly teaching and healing but overall nothing was changing the wrongs were still going on the injustices were still there the sin was everywhere no visible kingdom was in sight and so like everyone else John thought this isn't the way the kingdom's supposed to be so he'd become victimized by the thinking of the people around him this was clearly a problem with the disciples. The disciples were always fighting doubts about Jesus when they, because they had certain expectations of the Messiah, and Jesus didn't live up to them. And that's why even in Acts 1-6, just before his ascension, they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so he had to tell them for the umpteenth time, you're still asking me the same dumb question. It's not for you to know times or epochs in which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's the reason even after having been for them for three years in John 14, 9, he answers Philip, which is really speaking to all of them. He says, have I been with you so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
They had these confused concepts that came from the world around them. You remember the last Passover meal with Jesus in the upper room where they're all sitting around the very night Jesus is going to be betrayed, taken to be executed, and they're sitting around there. What were they doing? Arguing about who was going to be sitting, who was going to get to sit on the thrones at the highest point in the kingdom. Jesus is talking about dying, and it goes right past them. They didn't get it. So when Jesus did not do what John thought he should be doing, John began to think, maybe he's just another forerunner for the Messiah. Maybe we should be looking for someone else. Even he was affected by that misinformation. It didn't make any sense to him at all. It didn't make any sense to Thomas. It didn't make any sense to Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. They had all been victimized by what the people around them thought the Messiah should be. In fact, in John 10, 24, the Jews said to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. What's he tell them? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. They weren't even on his frequency. He was saying it over and over, but their expectations were so different that they couldn't hear what he was saying. We face the same causes for doubt today, don't we? We doubt because we're perplexed by the plan of God, and I, I think the world imposes that on us. I'm sure you've heard the question, as I have many times, well, if God is a God of love, why is there so much evil in the world? If God loves everyone so much, how come children die and people starve and people get disease and there's war and death? If your God is such a God of love, why didn't he make things right in the world? Why is there so much injustice? If your God is so loving and Jesus is so loving, how come he's going to send all those people to hell? What they're really saying is, let me tell you what kind of God I want. Let me tell you how God should be and how he should act. And if your God fits into my mold, then I'll believe. And you cannot let yourself become victimized by that kind of thinking or you too will doubt. And so you say, well, I don't know. And in your own mind, you begin wondering, well, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he do something about all these false religions? Why doesn't he just wipe them all out and just start with all the people who believe? And then you start, and when you start letting the world dictate to you what God's got to be like and what God's got to do, you're going to look into the Bible and you're going to be perplexed and start to doubt. The world doesn't know God. The world doesn't know God's plans. The world does not know Christ. They do not understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. If you begin to let the world force you to think that Christ must be who they say he must be, then you're going to start doubting. In Luke 17, 20 and 21, it says, now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the unspoken implication was, you just can't see it. 
That's the world's situation. It can't see Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. He doesn't fit their mold. Negative circumstances make us doubt, but we don't have to. Incomplete revelation might make us doubt, but we don't have to. And we don't have to doubt because of worldly influences either. There's a third, there's a fourth reason why we might doubt. And we're going to have to wait till next week to get to it. The answer is it's unfulfilled expectations. It's unfulfilled expectations, but we're going to have to stop for time and uh, get there next week. Um, we just don't. You want me to keep going? Look at verse three. I'll keep going for Terry's sake. John tells his disciples, verse 3, are you the expect to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Why would he ask that? Only because Jesus hadn't fulfilled his expectations. Uh, remember that back in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we saw that John had been boldly proclaiming, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's preaching judgment. In other words, he's saying the Messiah is coming in holy judgment. That's his message. He was always saying, repent, repent, repent. In other words, you better get your life right and repent of your sin because the Messiah is coming. And the implication was you're going to regret it if you don't. He expected the Messiah to come in on the scene with blazing fire and divine thunderbolts. You remember how Jesus is described in Revelation 19, 11 to 15, when he returns at his second coming to establish his millennial kingdom? Look at that for a minute. Revelation 19, 11 to 15. Revelation 19, 11 to 15. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty." That's the Messiah coming in judgment. And that's what John the Baptist was expecting. But here comes Jesus. And he collects this little group of 12 totally inept characters and meekly, wander, meekly wanders around through Galilee, healing a lot of people and preaching about the kingdom. And John just can't figure it out. Jesus was on a mission of mercy and John had a message of judgment. So he's waiting for the fury and the fire and the flame and the wrath. He had probably read and reread David's words in Psalm 9 where he says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my justice and my cause. You've sat on the throne judging righteously. And then again in Psalm 58, Surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. 
His mind was probably thinking the same thing as those souls of the saints under the altar in Revelation 6.10 who'd been martyred in the name of Christ who cry out, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? John saw no divine intervention, no judgment, no execution of justice. Jesus did not avenge the righteous. In fact, he didn't even defend himself against his own accusers. There were unfulfilled expectations. It's always been hard for believers to understand why God allows so many of his children to suffer and allows so many wicked, ungodly people to prosper. You expect God to do something, but nothing happens, and you say, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this go on? It just doesn't seem right. That was John. And it was doubly hard for him because he had a deep devotion to righteousness, and he was called by God to preach repentance and judgment. More than that, he was called to proclaim the coming of the expected one who would execute that judgment, which he thought would begin shortly, if not immediately after the Messiah appeared on the scene. Believers can do the same thing. Christians often get excited about the Lord's imminent return, but as the years go by and he doesn't return, their hope along with their commitment begins to fade and waver. They don't stop expecting him to return someday, but they stop expecting and uh stop thinking about it and hoping for it as much as they used to. And so they say to themselves, I wonder if he ever will come. Is this whole thing really true? I mean, my pastor tells me that and I've always believed that, but he hasn't come yet. And the world is just ripe for his return. So maybe it isn't true. Maybe we're just misunderstanding what the Bible means. And we become very similar to the scoffers we read about in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, who mock us and say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, where is this Jesus you keep saying is coming back? Nothing has changed since the beginning of time. You're nuts to believe he's coming. And so unfulfilled expectations can cause you to doubt and even fall back into sinful patterns in your life. You see, the imminent return of Christ is a great motivator to godly living. But if you begin to doubt that he's really coming back, it's real easy to go astray into sinful behavior. So how did Jesus address the issue of doubt with John the Baptist? How did he reassure him? Well, we will see that next week in verses 4 to 6. Okay? Our time is up.